0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV.
1: And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Celebrations in Venezuela this week as President Hugo Chavez leads a crowd in song at Miraflores the presidential residence in Caracas. All part of the atmosphere after Chavez won re-election. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we'll look back at those important Venezuelan elections along with looking forward. What do those elections mean for the peace process next door in Colombia? We'll search for answers along with looking forward to what to expect in the Colombian peace talks set to begin next week in Norway. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America.
2: Hugo Chavez won re-election as president of Venezuela this past weekend. He defeated the younger moderate candidate Enrique Capriles Rondosky. Chavez received about 55% of the national vote over the 44% for his opponent. This extends the presidential term for Chavez into January of 2019. Chávez asked the opposition to work with him during his election night speech. I invite a dialogue,
0: a debate, to work together for Venezuela's Bolivarian revolution.
2: First elected in 1998, Chávez has become a controversial figure due to his large social welfare programs and anti-American sentiments. We'll have more analysis of the election later in this program. Mexican soldiers killed the leader of the infamous Zetas drug cartel, Roberto Lasgano, in a firefight in the northern border state of Coahuila. Yet hours after the announcement of Lasgano's death, a group of armed men raided a funeral home and stole his corpse. Lasgano, known as El Verdugo, or the executioner, is blamed for some of Mexico's worst massacres of rival gang members and is perhaps the most important criminal to fall under President Felipe Calderón's war on cartels. As we just heard, Mexico's military is part of the war on drugs there, just like militaries in Central America are also on the front line of that conflict. Colin Campbell has this report. The growing trend of military personnel performing
0: the functions of local police officers is the chief concern of top Department of Defense officials overseeing Central and South America. Frank Mora of the U.S. Defense Department spoke on a panel at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace recently, and said military involvement in day-to-day public safety affairs is a dangerous and misguided approach to law enforcement.
2: There is real cause of concern when the military from any country is deployed domestically to counter or to carry out law enforcement
3: activities or functions.
0: Mora went on to say that military performing the role of public safety officials poses humanitarian problems and heightens the risk of corruption. Mora's statement comes as military personnel in several Latin American countries, such as Mexico, take on a greater role in leading the fight in the drug war. But as military involvement increases, so does the criticism. Members of the public and government officials in Mexico have accused the military of
2: corroborating with the cartels. Reporting for Latin Pulse, I'm Colin Gamble. Legislators in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington will vote on bills to legalize marijuana in November. Mexican law professor Alejandro Madrazo spoke on a panel at the Brookings Institution recently and said if the legalization passes, profits for Mexican drug cartels could decrease by up to 20%. If
3: Colorado
0: or Oregon legalize the participation of Mexican marijuana in the U.S. market, drop from 55% to 5%. Uh, This has to do with the fact that uh, the U.S. produced marijuana will be probably less risky to get to the U.S. market.
2: Because the U.S. would begin growing high quality marijuana, Madrazo predicts the presence of Mexican marijuana in the U.S. market would drop from 55% to 5%. Madrazo said that because 15,000 deaths in Mexico were linked to drugs in 2010, Legalization would also affect the nation's murder rate. The Pope accepted the resignation of a Chilean bishop after the bishop was accused of sexually abusing a minor. The 30-year-old accuser says Bishop Marco Antonio Ordenes Fernandez abused him at the age of 15 when he was an altar boy in the northern city of Aikiki. The accusation marks one of the few times the Vatican has publicly admitted it is investigating a bishop for sexual abuse. Chevron lost a bid before the U.S. Supreme Court to block an $18 billion judgment against it in Ecuador. The case involves pollution to the Amazon jungle. According to the Amazon Defense Coalition, Chevron is responsible for more than 18 billion gallons of toxic waste dumped into Amazon waterways, along with other pollutants that have destroyed several indigenous groups. Chevron says the allegations are fraudulent and stem from bribes and corruption. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine.
1: Thanks, Kurt. Next week, representatives of Colombia's government will sit down with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC, to begin peace talks. The goal is to end a civil war that has stretched on for more than 48 years. We talked to Juan Carlos Hidalgo of the Cato Institute via Skype. About this new peace process,
4: yeah, I think it's no surprise that uh, President Santos announced that he will look uh, uh, to restart again a peace process with the far guerrillas. This is not the first time that the Colombia government has tried to to have uh, uh, to reach uh, to a peace agreement with, with the far guerrillas and other armed insurgencies in the region. It, it, it's it's been a very uh, widely expected move in the last in the last couple of months. And uh, I think in, in my personal reaction is cautiousness. I'd rather be cautious towards the idea of reaching a peace agreement to, with the FARC than being optimistic. There are good reasons to be uh, to be cautious. Uh, the, as I said before, the, the Colombian government has tried in several occasions to reach an agreement with the FARC guerrillas. The last one was in 1998, when then-President Andres Pastana, Prastana opened high-profile peace talks with the FARC, and as a concession, uh, Pastrana gave the FARC, ceded uh, seized, seized, uh, the FARC control of a territory the size of Switzerland, and uh, the rebels used this neutral zone actually as a stronghold to consolidate their coca business, um, which the coca business gives them uh, revenues of approximately $500 million a year. And the fire guerrillas used the territory to strengthen the recruitment process, launched deadly attacks against the major cities of, of Colombia. And uh, they also like got involved heavily in, in other uh, crime activities like kidnapping of civilians and, and, and security officers. So that peace process collapsed uh, in 2002. And uh, I think that many Colombians is still uh, are reluctant to give the benefit of the doubt to the FARC guerrillas in this sense. But I mean, like, I think that also there is a, a large segment of the Colombian uh, population that is tired of, of this conflict, which has lasted almost 60 years, and they want to give peace a chance. So the question is, how how costly will this peace be, or, or whether the FARC are really interested in having peace at all? So... Uh, there is the, the feeling that this time around it will be different because the guerrillas uh, are under pressure. However, many people actually believe that that's exactly what, the reason why the guerrillas want to break. And they're looking to repeat what happened in 1998 when, when the government uh, declared a truce, gave them a large chunk of the Colombian territory, and they used this to regroup. Uh, So the question is whether that's happening again. President Santos says that he has learned the lessons of the past, that he's now going to declare a truce, and that uh, he's going to continue the military offensive against the FARC. So we'll see if if that will be uh, enough for the FARC to actually commit to peace or they are actually looking for
1: a break. You mentioned former President Uribe, and many people do give him credit for where Colombia is as far as the military advances that have gone on. But the president, the former president, former president Uribe has come out against these talks. So um, how do you feel about him opposing any sit down with the FARC? Indeed, uh, President Uribe has been a very uncomfortable
4: former president. He 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 doesn't seem to be at ease with the fact that he's no longer running the country. And from about a year ago, he has started a, a Twitter war against uh, President Juan Manuel Santos, criticizing him on a wide variety of, of issues. One of them is this peace process. He claims that the uh, government is capitulating to defeating a terrorist organization like the FAR guerrillas. And uh, he claims that this is a, a big mistake and that Colombians are going to regret this. Uh, I don't—I I share some of, of President Uribe's concern, but uh, some other uh, high officials and, and former presidents, like, for example, former President Pastrana, have indicated that at this moment uh, Uribe was willing and actually look, uh, actually achieved uh, a similar agreement with the uh, right-wing paramilitaries, and, uh, and that he gave the paramilitaries a chance to disarm, and that something similar must happen eventually with the FAR guerrillas. So uh, there are some inconsistencies in, in, in Uribe's narrative about what should be done with the FAR guerrillas. However, I think that some of his concerns about the willingness of the FARC to commit to peace and to, to quit arms are, are well-based, and that
1: we, we should actually take into account his criticism during
4: this peace process.
1: But does the Colombian state have what it takes after, as you mentioned, decades of war, Hundreds of thousands of people dead, millions displaced. Is is this not time to come to the peace table?
4: Yeah, yeah. For example, Adam Isaacson from from Walla from the Washington Office for Latin America has described the current situation as a hurrying stalemate, because yes, the FARC have been severely debilitated. Uh, the, the, the number of troops have, has halved, approximately to eight thousand eight thousand uh, guerrillas. In the jungles of Colombia, uh, but the capacity to inflict pain in, towards the military and towards Colombia's uh, civilian population and infrastructure is still pretty much uh, intact. Uh, actually, the number of attacks that the FARC have launched against against energy infrastructure in Colombia and against the military has increased in 60% in the last year. Uh, so many Colombians feel that most of the military gains that could be achieved have already been achieved. And this is the moment to sit down and actually get this, uh, the FARC guerrillas to disarm. One other factor that we have to take into account here is the, the drug business. The FARC have been long involved in the cocaine and the coca production business. As I said before, around $500 million in revenues each year they get from, from, from a uh, chipping coca outside cocaine, outside the, outside Colombia, And, uh, Given that the FAR guerrillas is a very uh, decentralized uh, guerrilla movement, um, the question is: even though the lead is, even though if its leadership commits to peace, how much in the ground they will be able to disarm the, 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 their troops and actually get them to 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 get involved in with Colombian civil society? Given that the cocaine is, is still a very profitable, highly profitable business, it is very likely that many of these 8,000 8, uh, troops that they currently have will still remain in the cocaine business and, and, and it will continue to wreak havoc uh, in, 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 with Colombia's security apparatus.
1: These drug profits, they're really what has extended this war as far as it's gone at this point. With, without those drug profits, this war would have been over with at least 10 years ago, maybe earlier. Indeed, indeed. Some research by,
4: by economists from La Universidad de Los Andes in Colombia uh, have found that if, if there weren't a war on drugs in Colombia, if uh, at least the number of homicides and the number of violence will, will be reduced by a third, which is significant in a country with such a high crime rate as Colombia. The crime rate has dropped dramatically in the last decade. Uh, the homicide rate, uh, rate has gone down from almost 80 per 100,000 inhabitants to 30, approximately 30 to, per 100,000 100, inhabitants. That's still a lot. Uh, just as a point of comparison, Mexico, which has been in the news lately for its violence uh, with drugs, has a uh, homicide rate of 24 per 100,000 inhabitants. So, Colombia is still more dangerous than, than Mexico. And th- this has to do a lot with with uh, with drugs. And the, the drug problem has, magnific- has amplified many of the institutional problems that Colombia has had historically the, the the problem with guerrillas given the 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 very tortuous geography of Colombia being a very mountainous uh, uh, country where there are big chunks of, of land where the, the the state has never has uh, has never had a very strong presence and the fact that also there is a, a long lingering conflict for land that actually was the driver the for for the fire guerrillas and other guerrilla moves to be born in the 1950s. And now they have mutated into this drug drug operation business. So it's a very complex country. And the fact that it's also still the major producer of cocaine in the world hasn't helped at all
1: to, to resolve these issues. If these negotiations are going to work in Oslo and in Havana eventually, what do you think we'll see? Do you think we will see an amnesty? What are your predictions?
4: Again, I, I remain cautious about uh, the commitment of the FARC with with the peace process, and, ac- and also we have to take into account that there is a lot of resistance from from people in in, so- in the Colombian civil society to grant uh, to grant the FARC uh, accomplishments in, neg- in the negotiating table that should be actually achieved throughout the, the electoral process in areas such as the economy such as land reform and so on so it's going to be a very tough process. Uh, President, Cadero, President Santos has said that he's going to have a very short uh, uh, time frame to reach a, a, some sort of agreement, a three-month period, uh, which I think is is good. It, this, long, this talk should not go, go for long like it happened back in 1998. And uh, also, I think that it will be very critical, and this is where, where I am actually dubious about this process, is the fact that There won't be a ceasefire. At least I'm against the the government declaring a ceasefire, but I think that if you look at successful uh, negotiation progress, progress, uh, peace processes around the world, the insurgencies have always declared a unilateral ceasefire as a sign of goodwill. And in this case, uh, the FAR guerrillas say they won't. They will continue attacking government infrastructure, energy infrastructure. They will, they will continue kidnapping people. And I think that that's a very uh, tough feat over there, like trying to achieve process where you're actually at war.
1: Well, Juan Carlos Hidalgo of the Cato Institute, thank you so much for your opinions. And we'll look forward to seeing whether they actually come true early in 2013. Thank you very much for being on Latin Pulse. You're welcome. I
4: want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future.
3: The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council.
1: Stephen Johnson, who heads the Latin American programs at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joins us today on Latin Pulse. Welcome to our program.
3: Hi, Rick. Nice to be with you.
1: We would like to talk to you about the recent elections in Venezuela. What is your analysis coming out of those elections?
3: Well, I don't think anybody could have predicted uh, the result uh, very accurately, um, in my own case I I felt that Chavez was going to win because uh, so much was weighted on his side. He had uh, the uh, uh, state oil company revenues that uh, funded some of his campaign activities. He had a sort of a monopoly, quasi-monopoly on the airwaves. He was able to insult uh, his challenger, whereas the challenger would have uh, been breaking the law had he uh, said anything critical of the, the president. So there was a lot weighted in his favor. Nonetheless, um, I was really surprised at how well the opposition did, coming within uh, uh, 10 or 11 points of uh, uh, matching Chavez uh, or even beating him. I think it uh, symbolizes a a revitalized opposition and a much more um, sophisticated uh, opposition that's uh, able to campaign effectively in that kind of environment.
1: Enrique Capriles Rodonsky was the opposition candidate young just 40 for these elections are we going to see him again challenged perhaps in six years or do you think the mantle oh. will go elsewhere
3: oh undoubtedly undoubtedly i think he's got a, a big future ahead of him and he's probably going to be uh, taking a look at uh, uh, tapes and and uh, after action reports and figuring out what worked and, and what didn't work and and he'll be back but he'll be better uh when he he runs again
1: Hugo chavez the president of venezuela will now be uh running that country at least um into i believe it's uh 2019 um what are we going to see from venezuela
3: going forward in
1: these next six years any real changes
3: well there's the the, the health issue that uh, uh clouds his future at least in in the minds of uh, many observers we don't really know what's uh, wrong with him or how serious his illness is uh, uh having uh cancerous tumors removed, uh, as has been reported, uh, is a serious matter. And there are some people who don't think that he's going to finish out this term. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, uh, it's possible for people with certain kinds of uh, tumors to to live uh, quite long, and if their treatment is effective, they can go on. So it's uh, not something that's really easy to predict. But one thing's for sure, that there are some trend lines which are fairly obvious. One, the economy is not doing as well uh, as it uh, had been in the past, even though oil prices uh, managed to uh, stay fairly high. Uh, inflation is running about 30 percent this month. Um, the Bolivar is uh, some, something like 12 Bolivars to the dollar on the black market, although the official rate is about four uh, to the dollar. Um, there are continuing food shortages, power blackouts, Uh, infrastructure is is crumbling. Uh, Meanwhile some of the political uh, internal and and, uh, external political projects of Chavez continue to be funded at, at fairly high levels. So it's probably not possible that he can continue on in this this way and may have to moderate some of his programs as well as moderate some of his discourse. Because I think he's unnoticed that there is uh, about uh, a little less than half of the electorate that is not with him, and uh, they're going to be demanding some answers as to why Venezuela is not the safest nation in the world is not doing better economically and is is not uh, uh, doing certain things to to make it a a more cooperative player in the uh, world uh, um, or the international community.
1: How will Chavez and his re-election have any effect on the U.S. election? Is is he even going to be a topic of discussion in any of these debates or anything going forward in our election here?
3: I think both parties and, and both candidates uh, approach uh, uh, his phenomenon in a, in a similar fashion by choosing not to get into a war of words with him because he's a, a master uh, insult artist. He does this very well. Uh, and you can't uh, uh, bend down and and uh, engage in that kind of thing without getting a lot of mud on yourself. And uh, most Americans don't like to see their presidents do that kind of thing. Um, that said, I think that either, in either case, with either President Obama or Mitt Romney, you'll probably see a continuation of a fairly hard line of uh, uh, not uh, uh, tolerating some of the behavior that we've seen come out of that, that regime. Uh, the military uh, officials that have engaged in drug trafficking certainly are going to be pursued and, and named as kingpins. If they continue to do that, um, certainly there's going to be tracking of money laundering activities. Uh, there will be certainly a, a strong eye uh, placed on Iran's activities in, in Venezuela and uh, uh Venezuela being used as kind of a mothership uh for uh extra, hemispher- he- extra hemispheric uh, influences um, in in that region
1: the Romney campaign has certainly talked a lot about China during this particular election cycle and and some would think that that's the only foreign policy issue. But the Chinese have also been involved a lot in investment in Venezuela. So is not Venezuela's connection to China also something um, that the U.S. is concerned about?
3: Well, China is very pragmatic in in its relations with Venezuela and with other South American states, and and mainly its interest is uh, uh, economic, although there are some reports and some analysts who believe that China's loans – to uh, Chavez uh, help boy his uh, uh, election campaign. I don't know whether that's, that's really the case, but in any sense, China has been uh, helpful to his project uh, in making investments, and China hopes to have a return in access to petroleum uh, reserves and, and oil production coming out of Venezuela. Uh, the problem that they face, though, is that uh, as a steward of those reserves, uh, uh, that particular government, Chavez's government, is not doing a particularly good job in reinvestment and ma- maintaining um, the fields or the, the uh, uh, refining areas. So um, there may be some problems ahead, but one thing that I kind of want to get back to and, and expand on just a, a little bit, and I s- was talking about extra hemispheric in- influences. You know, we live in a globalized world, so we can say, well, it's uh, we really don't want uh, um, um, a lot of interference from other parts of the world coming into our hemisphere, kind of like in the Monroe Doctrine. But that's not the case today. That's not something that we can necessarily control because we all live in an interdependent uh, world today that uh, depends on trade from many different parts. And so when I say extra hemispheric influences, I'm referring to ones that are not helpful, ones that uh, tend to be threatening and, and based on uh, aggression as opposed to trade and, and encouraging the best kind of behaviors in countries.
1: So are we talking about transnational crime, terrorism? What specifically would you be referring to there?
3: I think those are two good starting points. Trans, uh, you know, Transnational crime is probably the number one threat. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere today, in, in terms of uh, direct threats to people 's lives, terrorism is certainly there uh, with it, and uh, the uh, possibility of destabilizing countries and through subversion and, and through uh, terrorist activities is, is still there. and I think do you really see the
1: Venezuelans getting involved in that in the next six years, or do you see them actually backing away from, from that? They are helping with the peace process in Colombia, across the border?
3: Well, they face certain kinds of constraints. I don't think that the support for, say, the FARC guerrillas in Colombia, um, that kind of support is as, as strong as it once was. And uh, certainly there are more eyes on the ground to be able to track that and to to uh, uh, see what that might be. And there's a peace process going on with Colombia that uh, um, I think there are fairly high hopes that that will yield some Uh, results. So in some ways that kind of thing is is fading. I think what is a little bit more worrisome is the kind of thing that goes on with groups like Hezbollah and and, uh, Iran's uh, attempts to have uh, some influence because that's based on an apocalyptic vision that uh, uh, doesn't necessarily um, hew to a kind of reasoning that uh, we understand. So that's not a good influence to have. It's not a good thing to have going on in, in South America. Neither is Hezbollah, which is its pro- proxy. But, you know, I risk going on and talking about this. Uh, I risk actually uh, overstating that case somewhat, because I I think there are constraints on what Iran can do, and I think there are cultural constraints on where Iran can plug into.
1: Well, looking forward, I guess we'll see whether President Chavez changes his relationship with the United States or continues to work in the axis with President Ahmadinejad and Iran.
3: My sense is that he will continue, as he has been, to be hostile to the United States and to be hostile to Western-style democracies that uh, allow freedom of expression and and allow uh, people to... uh, uh, postulate as uh, candidates for office uh, freely, uh, and have uh, uh, free economies in, in which markets uh, uh, dominate and allow free economic choices as opposed to choices that are imposed by the state. His vision is very different, and he's he's committed to that. Uh, it would be very hard to back away from it.
1: Stephen Johnson of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thank you so much for joining us on Latin Pulse today. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Colin Campbell and Jordan Derry, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication
0: with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.